The Fifth Petition And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. This part now relates to our poor, miserable life, which, although we have and believe the word of God, and do and submit to his will, and are supported by his gifts and blessings, is nevertheless not without sin. For we still stumble daily and transgress, because we live in the world among men who do us much harm, and give us cause for impatience, anger, revenge, etc., Besides, we have Satan at our back, who sets upon us on every side and fights, as we have heard, against all the foregoing petitions, so that it is not possible always to stand firm in such a persistent conflict. Therefore, there is here, here again great need to call upon God and to pray, Dear Father, forgive us our trespasses. Not as though he did not forgive sin without and even before our prayer, for he has given us the gospel, in which is pure forgiveness before we prayed or ever thought about it. But this is to the intent that we may recognize and accept such forgiveness. For since the flesh in which we daily live is of such a nature that it neither trusts nor believes God and is ever active in evil lusts and devices, so that we sin daily in word and deed by commission and omission, by which the conscience is thrown into unrest, so that it is afraid of the wrath and displeasure of God and thus loses the comfort and confidence derived from the gospel. Therefore it is ceaselessly necessary that we run hither and obtain consolation to comfort the conscience again. But this should serve God's purpose of breaking our pride and keeping us humble, for in case anyone should boast of his godliness and despise others, God has reserved this prerogative to himself, that the person is to consider himself and place this prayer before his eyes, and he will find that he is no better than others, and that in the presence of God all must lower their plumes and be glad that they can attain forgiveness. And let no one think, that as long as we live here he can reach such a position that he will not need such forgiveness. In short, if God does not forgive without ceasing, we are lost. It is therefore the intent of this petition, that God would not regard our sins and hold up to us what we daily deserve, but would deal graciously with us, and forgive as he has promised, and thus grant us a joyful and confident conscience, to stand before him in prayer. For where the heart is not in right relation towards God, nor can take such confidence, it will never more venture to pray. But such a confident and joyful heart can spring from nothing else than the knowledge of the forgiveness of sin. But there is here attached a necessary yet consolatory addition, as we forgive he has promised that we shall be sure that everything is forgiven and pardoned, yet in the manner that we also forgive our neighbor. For just as we daily sin much against God, and yet he forgives everything through grace, 
So we too must ever forgive our neighbor who does us injury, violence, and wrong, shows malice toward us, etc. If, therefore, you do not forgive, then do not think that God forgives you. But if you forgive, you have this consolation and assurance that you are forgiven in heaven, not on account of your forgiving, for God forgives freely and without condition, out of pure grace, because he has so promised, as the gospel teaches. But in order that he may set this up for our confirmation and assurance for a sign alongside of the promise which accords with this prayer, Luke 6.37, Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Therefore, Christ also repeats it soon after the Lord's Prayer and says, Matthew 6.14, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, etc. This sign is therefore attached to this petition, that when we pray, remember the promise and reflect thus, Dear Father, for this reason I come and pray thee to forgive me, not that I can make satisfaction or can merit anything by my works, but because thou hast promised and attached the seal thereto, that I should be as sure as though I had had absolution pronounced by thyself. For as much as baptism and the Lord's Supper appointed as external signs effect, so much also this sign can effect to confirm our consciences and cause them to rejoice. And it is especially given for this purpose that we might use and practice it every hour as a thing that we have with us at all times. The Sixth Petition And Lead Us Not Into Temptation We have now heard enough what toil and labor is required to retain all that for which we pray and to persevere therein, which, however, is not achieved without infirmities and stumbling. Besides, although we have received forgiveness and a good conscience and are entirely acquitted, yet is our life of such a nature that one stands today and tomorrow falls. Therefore, even though we be godly now and stand before God with a good conscience, we must pray again that he would not suffer us to relapse and yield to trials and temptations. Temptation, however, or as our Saxons in olden times used to call it, Bekunerunge, is of three kinds, namely of the flesh, of the world, and of the devil. For in the flesh we dwell and carry the old Adam about our neck, who exerts himself and incites us daily to inchastity, laziness, gluttony and drunkenness, avarice and deception, to defraud our neighbor and to overcharge him, and in short, to all manner of evil lusts which cleave to us by nature, and to which we are incited by the society, example and what we hear and see of other people, which often wound and inflame even an innocent heart. Next comes the world, which offends us in word and deed and impels us to anger and impatience. In short, there is nothing but hatred and envy, enmity, violence and wrong, unfaithfulness, vengeance, cursing, raillery, slander, pride and haughtiness, with superfluous finery, honor, fame and power, where no one is willing to be the least, but everyone desires to sit at the head and to be seen before all. 
Then comes the devil, inciting and provoking in all directions, but especially agitating matters that concern the conscience and spiritual affairs, namely, to induce us to despise and disregard both the word and works of God, to tear us away from faith, hope, and love, and bring us into misbelief, false security, obduracy, or, on the other hand, to despair, denial of God, blasphemy, and innumerable other shocking things. These are indeed snares and nets, yea, real fiery darts, which are shot most venomously into the heart, not by flesh and blood, but by the devil. Great and grievous indeed are all these dangers and temptations which every Christian must bear, even though each one were alone by himself, so that every hour that we are in this vile life where we are attacked on all sides, chased and hunted down, we are moved to cry out and to pray that God would not suffer us to become weary and faint and to relapse into sin, shame, and unbelief. For otherwise, it is impossible to overcome even the least temptation. This, then, is leading us into temptation. To wit, when he gives us power and strength to resist, the temptation, however, not being taken away or removed. For while we live in the flesh and have the devil about us, no one can escape temptation and allurements, and it cannot be otherwise than that we must endure trials, yea, be engulfed in them. But we pray for this, that we may not fall and be drowned in them. To feel temptation is therefore a far different thing from consenting or yielding to it. We must all feel it, although not all in the same manner, but some in a greater degree and more severely than others, as the young suffer especially from the flesh. Afterwards, they that attain to middle age and old or middle life and old age from the world. But others who are occupied with spiritual matters, that is, strong Christians, from the devil. But such feeling, as long as it is against our will and we would rather be rid of it, can harm no one. For if we did not feel it, it could not be called a temptation. But to consent thereto is when we give it the reins and do not resist or pray against it. Therefore, we Christians must be armed and daily expect to be incessantly attacked in order that no one may go on in security and heedlessly, as though the devil were far from us, but at all times expect and parry his blows. For though I am now chaste, patient, kind, and in firm faith, the devil will this very hour send such an arrow into my heart that I can scarcely stand. For he is an enemy that never desists nor becomes tired, so that when one temptation ceases, there always arise others and fresh ones. Accordingly, there is no help or comfort except to run hither and to take hold of the Lord's prayer, and thus to speak to God from the heart, Dear Father, Thou hast bidden me pray, Let me not relapse because of temptations. Then you will see that they must desist, and finally acknowledge themselves conquered. Else, if you venture to help yourself by your own thoughts and counsel, you will only make the matter worse and give the devil more space. 
For he has a serpent's head, which, if it gain an opening into which he can slip, the whole body will follow without check. But prayer can prevent him and drive him back. The Seventh Petition But deliver us from evil. Amen. In the Greek text, this petition reads thus, Deliver or preserve us from the evil one or the malicious one. And it looks as if he were speaking of the devil, as though he would comprehend everything in one, so that the entire substance of all our prayer is directed against our chief enemy. For it is he who hinders among us everything that we pray for, the name or honor of God, God's kingdom and will, our daily bread, a cheerful good conscience, etc. Therefore we finally sum it all up and say, Dear Father, pray, help that we be rid of all these calamities. But there is nevertheless also included whatever evil may happen to us under the devil's kingdom, poverty, shame, death, and in short, all the agonizing misery and heartache of which there is such an unnumbered multitude on the earth. For since the devil is not only a liar but also a murderer, he constantly seeks our life and wreaks his anger whenever he can afflict our bodies with misfortune and harm. Hence it comes that he often breaks men's necks, or drives them to insanity, drowns some, and incites many to commit suicide, and to many other terrible calamities. Therefore there is nothing for us to do upon earth but to pray against this arch enemy without ceasing. For unless God preserved us, we would not be safe from him, even for an hour. Hence you see again how God wishes us to pray to him also for all the things which affect our bodily interests, so that we seek and expect help nowhere else except in him. But this matter he has put last. For if we are to be preserved and delivered from all evil, the name of God must first be hallowed in us, his kingdom must be with us, and his will be done. After that, he will finally preserve us from all sin and shame and besides, from everything that may hurt or injure us. Thus God has briefly placed before us all the distress which may ever come upon us, so that we might have no excuse for whatever for not praying. But all depends on this, that we learn also to say Amen, that is, that we do not doubt that our prayer is surely heard and shall be done. For this is nothing else than the word of undoubting faith, which does not pray at a venture, but knows that God does not lie to him, since he has promised to grant it. Therefore, where there is no such faith, there cannot be true prayer either. It is therefore a pernicious delusion of those who pray in such a manner that they dare not from the heart say yea and positively conclude that God hears them, but remain in doubt and say, How should I be so bold as to boast that God hears my prayer? For I am but a poor sinner, etc. The reason for this is, they regard not the promise of God, but their own work and worthiness whereby they despise God and reproach Him with lying, and therefore they receive nothing. As St. James 1.6 says, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. 
For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Behold, such importance God attaches to the fact that we are sure we do not pray in vain, and that we do not in any way despise our prayer. Holy Baptism We have now finished the three chief parts of the common Christian doctrine. Besides these, we have yet to speak of our two sacraments instituted by Christ, of which also every Christian ought to have at least an ordinary brief instruction, because without them there can be no Christian. Although, alas, hitherto no instruction concerning them has been given. But in the first place we take up baptism by which we are first received into the Christian church. However, in order that it may be readily understood, we will treat of it in an orderly manner and keep only to that which is necessary for us to know. For how it is to be maintained and defended against heretics and sects, we will commend to the learned. In the first place, we must above all things know well the words upon which baptism is founded and to which everything refers that is to be said on the subject. Namely, where the Lord Christ speaks in Matthew 28, 19, Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Likewise, in St. Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. In these words, you must note in the first place that here stand God's commandment and institution. Lest we doubt that baptism is divine, not devised nor invented by men. For as truly as I can say, no man has spun the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer out of his head, but they are revealed and given by God himself, So also I can boast that baptism is no human trifle, but instituted by God himself. Moreover, that it is most solemnly and strictly commanded that we must be baptized or we cannot be saved, lest anyone regard it as a trifling matter like putting on a new red coat. For it is of the the greatest importance that we esteem baptism excellent, glorious, and exalted for which we contend and fight chiefly, because the world is now so full of sects clamoring that baptism is an external thing and that external things are of no benefit. But let it be ever so much an external thing. Here stand God's word and command, which institute, establish, and confirm baptism. But what God institutes and commands cannot be a vain, but must must be a most precious thing, though in appearance it were of less value than a straw. If hitherto people could consider it a great thing when the Pope with his letters and bulls dispensed indulgences and confirmed altars and churches solely because of the letters and seals, we ought to esteem baptism much more highly and more precious because God has commanded it. And besides, it is performed in his name. For these are the words, Go ye baptize, however not in your name, but in the name of God. For to be baptized in the name of God is to be baptized not by men, but by God himself. 
Therefore, although it is performed by human hands, it is nevertheless truly God's own work. From this fact, everyone may himself readily infer that it is a far higher work than any work performed by a man or a saint. For what greater work than the work of God can we do? But here, the devil is busy to delude us with false appearances and lead us away from the work of God to our own works. For there is a much more splendid appearance when the Carthusian does many great and difficult works, and we all think much more of that which we do and merit ourselves. But the Scriptures teach thus, Even though we collect in one mass the works of all the monks, however splendidly they may shine, they would not be as noble and good as if God should pick up a straw. Why? Because the person is nobler and better. Here, then, we must not estimate the person according to the works, but the works according to the person, from whom they must derive their nobility. But insane reason will not regard this, and because baptism does not shine like the works which we do, it is to be esteemed as nothing. From this, now learn a proper understanding of the subject, and how to, un to answer the question what baptism is. Namely thus, that it is not mere ordinary water, but water comprehended in God's word and command, and sanctified thereby, so that it is nothing else than a divine water. Not that the water in itself is nobler than other water, but that God's word and command are added. Therefore it is pure wickedness and blasphemy of the devil that now our new spirits, to mock at baptism, omit it from God's words and institution, and look upon it in no other way than as water which is taken from the well, and then blather and say, How is a handful of water to help the soul? I, my friend, who does not know that water is water if tearing things asunder is what we are after? But how dare you thus interfere with God's order and take away the most precious treasure with which God has connected and enclosed it, and which he will not have separated? For the kernel in the water is God's word or command, and at the name of God, which is a treasure greater and nobler than heaven and earth. Comprehend the difference, then, that baptism is quite another thing than all other water not on account of the natural quality, but because something more noble is here added. For God himself stakes his honor, his power, and his might on it. Therefore it is not only natural water, but a divine, heavenly, holy, and blessed water. And in whatever terms we can praise it, all on account of the word, which is a heavenly, holy word, that no one can sufficiently extol, for it has and is able to do all that God is and can do. Hence also it derives its essence as a sacrament. As St. Augustine also taught, Ac cedat verbum ad elementum et fit sacramentum. That is, when the word is joined to the element or natural substance, it becomes a sacrament. That is, a holy and divine matter and sign. Therefore, we always teach that the sacraments and all external things which God ordains and institutes should not be regarded according to the coarse external mask, as we regard the shell of a nut, 
but as the word of God is included therein. For thus we also speak of the parental estate and of civil government. If we propose to regard them in as far as they have noses, eyes, skin, and hair, flesh, and bones, they look like Turks and heathen. And someone might start up and say, Why should I esteem them more than others? But because the commandment is added, Honor thy father and thy mother, I behold a different man, adorned and clothed with the majesty and glory of God. The commandment, I say, is the chain of gold about his neck, yea, the crown upon his head, which shows to me how and why one must honor this flesh and blood. Thus, and much more even, you must honor baptism and esteem it glorious on account of the word, since he himself has honored it both by words and deeds. Moreover, confirmed it with miracles from heaven. For do you think that it was a jest, that when Christ was baptized, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Ghost descended visibly, and everything was divine glory and majesty? Therefore I exhort again that these two, the water and the word, by no means be separated from one another and parted. For if the word is separated from it, the water is the same as that with which the servant cooks, and may indeed be called a bathkeeper's baptism. But when it is added, as God has ordained, it is a sacrament, and is called Christ baptism. Let this be the first part, regarding the essence and dignity of the holy sacrament. In the second place, since we now know what baptism is, and how it is to be regarded, we must also learn why and for what purpose it was instituted, that is, what it profits, gives, and works. And this also we cannot discern better than from the words of Christ above quoted. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Therefore state it most simply thus, that the power, work, profit, fruit, and end of baptism is this, namely to save. For no one is baptized in order that he may become a prince, but as the words declare, that he be saved. But to be saved, we know, is nothing else than to be delivered from sin, death, and the devil, and to enter into the kingdom of Christ, and to live with him forever. Here you see again how highly and precious we should esteem baptism, because in it we obtain such an unspeakable treasure, which also indicates sufficiently that it cannot be ordinary mere water. For mere water could not do such a thing, but the word does it, and as said above, the fact that the name of God is comprehended therein. But where the name of God is, there must be also life and salvation, that it may be indeed called a divine, blessed, fruitful, and gracious water. For by the word such power is imparted to baptism, that it is a laver of regeneration, as St. Paul also calls it, Titus 3.5. But as our would-be wise new spirits assert that faith alone saves, and that works and external things avail nothing, we answer, It is true, indeed, that nothing in us is of any avail but faith, as we shall hear still further. But these blind guides are unwilling to see this, namely, that faith must have something which it believes, that is, of which it takes hold, 
and upon which it stands and rests. Thus, faith clings to the water and believes that it is baptism, in which there is pure salvation and life, not through the water as we have sufficiently stated, but through the fact that it is embodied in the word and institution of God, and the name of God inheres in it. Now, if I believe this, what else is it than believing in God as in him who has given and planted his word into this ordinance, and proposes to us this external thing wherein we may apprehend such a treasure? Now, they are so mad as to separate faith and that to which faith clings and is bound, though it be something external. Yea, it shall and must be something external, that it may be apprehended by the senses and understood and thereby be brought into the heart, as indeed the entire gospel is an external verbal preaching. In short, what God does and works in us, he proposes to work through such external ordinances. Wherever, therefore, he speaks, yea, in whichever direction or by whatever means he speaks, thither faith must look, and to that it must hold. Now here we have the words, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. To what else do they refer than to baptism, that is, to the water comprehended in God's ordinance? Hence it follows that whoever rejects baptism rejects the word of God, faith, and Christ, who directs us thither and binds us to baptism. In the third place, since we have learned the great benefit and power of baptism, let us see further who is the person that receives what baptism gives and profits. This is again most beautifully and clearly expressed in the words, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That is, faith alone makes the person worthy to receive profitably the saving divine water. For since these blessings are here presented and promised in the words in and with the water, they cannot be received in any other way than by believing them with the heart. Without faith, it profits nothing. Notwithstanding, it is in itself a divine superabundant treasure. Therefore, this single word, he that believeth, affects this much that it excludes and repels all works which we can do in the opinion that we obtain and merit salvation by them. For it is determined that whatever is not faith avails nothing, nor receives anything. But if they say, as they are accustomed, still, Baptism is itself a work, and you say works are of no avail for salvation. What then becomes of faith? Answer, yes, our works indeed avail nothing for salvation. Baptism, however, is not our work, but God's. For as was stated, you must put Christ's baptism far away from a bathkeeper's baptism. God's works, however, are saving and necessary for salvation and do not exclude but demand faith. For without faith, they could not be apprehended. For by suffering the water to be poured upon you, you have not yet received baptism in such a manner that it benefits you anything. But it becomes beneficial to you if you have yourself baptized with the thought that this is according to God's command and ordinance. And besides, in God's name, 
in order that you may receive the water, receive in the water, the promised salvation. Now this the fist cannot do, nor the body, but the heart must believe it. Thus you see plainly that there is no, here no work done by us, but a treasure which he gives us, and which faith apprehends. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross is not a work, but a treasure comprehended in the word, and offered to us and received by faith. Therefore they do us violence by exclaiming against us as though we preach against faith. While we alone insist upon it as being of such necessity that without it nothing can be received nor enjoyed. Thus we have these three parts which it is necessary to know concerning this sacrament, especially that the ordinance of God is to be held in all honor, which alone would be sufficient, though it be an entirely external thing, like the commandment, Honor thy father and thy mother, which refers to bodily flesh and blood. Therein we regard not the flesh and blood, but the commandment of God in which they are comprehended, and on account of which the flesh is called father and mother. So also, though we had no more than these words, Go ye and baptize, etc., it would be necessary for us to accept and do it as the ordinance of God. Now there is here not only God's commandment and injunction, but also the promise, on account of which it is still far more glorious than whatever else God has commanded and ordained, and is, in short, so full of consolation and grace that heaven and earth cannot comprehend it. But it requires skill to believe this, for the treasure is not wanting, but this is wanting that men apprehend it and hold it firmly. Therefore, every Christian has enough in baptism to learn and to practice all his life, for he has, all, he has always enough to do to believe firmly what it promises and brings, victory over death and the devil, forgiveness of sin, the grace of God, the entire Christ, and the Holy Ghost with his gifts. In short, it is so transcendent that if timid nature could realize it, it might well doubt whether it could be true. For consider, if there were somewhere a physician who understood the art of saving men from dying, or, even though they died, of restoring them speedily to life, so that they would thereafter live forever, how the world would pour in money like snow and rain, so that because of the throng of the rich, no one could find access. But here in baptism, there is brought free to everyone's door such a treasure and medicine as utterly destroys death and preserves all men alive. Thus we must regard baptism and make it profitable to ourselves, that when our sins and conscience oppress us, we strengthen ourselves and take comfort and say, Nevertheless, I am baptized. But if I am baptized, it is promised me that I shall be saved and have eternal life both in soul and body. For that is the reason why these two things are done in baptism, namely, that the body, which can apprehend nothing but the water, is sprinkled. And in addition, the word is spoken for the soul to apprehend. Now, since both the water and the word are one baptism, therefore body and soul must be saved and live forever. 
the soul through the word which it believes, but the body because it is united with the soul and also apprehends baptism as it is able to apprehend it. We have, therefore, no greater jewel in body and soul, for by it we are made holy and are saved, which no other kind of life, no work upon earth, can attain. Let this suffice respecting the nature, blessing, and use of baptism, for it answers the present purpose. Of Infant Baptism Here, a question occurs by which the devil through his sects confuses the world, namely, of infant baptism, whether children also believe and are justly baptized. Concerning this, we say briefly, Let the simple dismiss this question from their minds and refer it to the learned, but if you wish to answer, then answer thus. That the baptism of infants is pleasing to Christ is sufficiently proved from his own work, Namely, that God sanctifies many of them who have been thus baptized, and has given them the Holy Ghost. And that there are yet many, even today, in whom we perceive that they have the Holy Ghost, both because of their doctrine and life. As it is also given to us by the grace of God, that we can explain the Scriptures and come to the knowledge of Christ, which is impossible without the Holy Ghost. But if God did not accept the baptism of infants, he would not give the Holy Ghost nor any of his gifts to any of them. In short, during this long time unto this day, no man upon earth could have been a Christian. Now since God confirms baptism by the gifts of his Holy Ghost, as is plainly perceptible in some of the church fathers as St. Bernard, Gerson, Jan Hus, and others who were baptized in infancy, and since the Holy Christian Church cannot perish until the end of the world, they must acknowledge that such infant baptism is pleasing to God. For he can never be opposed to himself, or support falsehood and wickedness, or for its promotion impart his grace and spirit. This is indeed the best and strongest proof for the simple-minded and unlearned. For they shall not take from us or overthrow this article, I believe a Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints. Further, we say that we are not so much concerned to know whether the person baptized believes or not, for on that account baptism does not become invalid, but everything depends upon the word and command of God. This now is perhaps somewhat acute, but it rests entirely upon what I have said, that baptism is nothing else than water and the word of God in and with each other. That is, when the word is added to the water, baptism is valid, even though faith be wanting. For my faith does not make baptism, but receives it. Now, baptism does not become invalid, even though it be wrongly received or employed, since it is not bound, as stated, to our faith, but to the word. For even though a Jew should today come dishonestly and with evil purpose, and we should baptize him in all good faith, we must say that his baptism is nevertheless genuine. For here is the water, together with the word of God, even though he does not receive it as he should, just as those who go unworthily to the sacrament receive the true sacrament, even though they do not believe. Thus you see that the objection of the sectarians is in vain. For, as we have said, even though infants did not believe, 
which, however, is not the case, yet their baptism, as now shown, would be valid. And no one should rebaptize them, just as nothing is detracted from the sacrament, though one approach it with evil purpose. And he could not be allowed, on account of his abuse, to take it a second time the selfsame hour, as though he had not received the true sacrament at first. For what would that mean, to blaspheme and profane the sacrament in the worst manner? How dare we think that God's word and ordinance should be wrong and invalid because we make a wrong use of it? Therefore I say, if you did not believe then, believe now and say thus, The baptism indeed was right, but I, alas, did not receive it aright. For I myself also, and all who are baptized, must speak thus before God. I come hither in my faith and in that of others. Yet I cannot rest in this, that I believe, and that many people pray for me. But in this I rest, that it is thy word and command. Just as I go to the sacrament, trusting not in my faith, but in the word of Christ, whether I am strong or weak, that I commit to God. But this I know, that he bids me go, eat and drink, etc., and gives me his body and blood. That will not deceive me or prove false to me. Thus we do also in infant baptism. We bring the child in conviction and hope that it believes. And we pray that God may grant it faith, but we do not baptize it upon that, but solely upon the command of God. Why so? Because we know that God does not lie. I and my neighbor, and in short all men, may err and deceive, but the word of God cannot err. Therefore they are presumptuous, clumsy minds that draw such inferences and conclusions as these. Where there is not the true faith, there also can be no true baptism. Just as if I would infer, if I do not believe, then Christ is nothing. Or thus, if I am not obedient, then father, mother, and government are nothing. Is that a correct conclusion? That whenever anyone does not do what he ought, the thing in itself shall be nothing and of no value? My dear, just invert the argument and rather draw this inference. For this very reason, baptism is something and is right, because it has been wrongly received. For if it were not right and true in itself, it could not be misused nor sinned against. The saying is this, Abusus non tolit, sed confirmat substantiam. Abuse does not destroy the essence, but confirms it. For gold is not the less gold, though a harlot wear it in sin and shame. Therefore, let it be decided that baptism always remains true, retains its full essence, even though a single person should be baptized and he, in addition, should not believe truly. For God's ordinance and word cannot make variable or be altered by men. But these people, the fanatics, are so blinded that they do not see the word and command of God and regard baptism in the magistrates only as they regard water in the brook or in pots, or as any other man. Because they do not see faith nor obedience, they conclude that they are to be regarded as invalid. Here lurks a con concealed seditious devil, 
who would like to tear the crown from the head of authority and then trample it underfoot, and in addition, pervert and bring to naught all the works and ordinances of God. Therefore, we must be watchful and well-armed, and not allow ourselves to be directed nor turned away from the word, in order that we may not regard baptism as a mere empty sign, as the fanatics dream. Lastly, we must also know what baptism signifies and why God has ordained just such external sign and ceremony for the sacrament by which we are first received into the Christian church. But the act or ceremony is this, that we are sunk under the water which passes over us and afterwards are drawn out again. These two parts, to be sunk under the water and drawn out again, signify the power and operation of baptism which is nothing else than putting to death the old Adam, and after that, the resurrection of the new man, both of which must take place in us all our lives, so that a truly Christian life is nothing else than a daily baptism, once begun and ever to be continued. For this must be practiced without ceasing, that we ever keep purging away whatever is of the old Adam, and that which belongs to the new man come forth. But what is the old man? It is that which is born in us from Adam. Angry, hateful, envious, unchaste, stingy, lazy, haughty, yea, unbelieving, infected with all vices and by having by nature nothing good in it. Now when we are come into the kingdom of Christ, these things must daily decrease, that the longer we live, we become more gentle, more patient, more meek, and ever withdraw more and more from unbelief, avarice, hatred, envy, haughtiness. This is the true use of baptism among Christians as signified by baptizing with water. Where this, therefore, is not practiced, but the old man is left unbridled, so as to continually become stronger, that is not using baptism, but striving against baptism. For those who are without Christ cannot but daily become worse, according to the proverb which express, expresses the truth. Worse and worse, the longer, the worse. If a year ago one was proud and avaricious, then he is much prouder and more avaricious this year, so that the vice grows and increases with him from his youth up. A child has no special vice, but when it grows up, it becomes unchaste and impure, and when it reaches maturity, real vices begin to prevail the longer, the more. Therefore, the old man goes unrestrained in his nature if he is not checked and suppressed by the power of baptism. On the other hand, where men have become Christians, he daily decreases until he finally perishes. That is truly to be buried in baptism and daily to come forth again. Therefore, the external sign is appointed not only for a powerful effect, but also for a signification. Where, therefore, faith flourishes with its fruits, there it has no empty signification, but the work accompanies it. But where faith is wanting, it remains a mere unfruitful sign. And here you see that baptism, both in its power and signification, comprehends also the third sacrament, which has been called repentance, 
as it is really nothing else than baptism. For what else is repentance but an earnest attack upon the old man and entering upon a new life? Therefore, if you live in repentance, you walk in baptism, which not only signifies such a new life, but also produces, begins, and exercises it. For therein are given grace, the Spirit, and power to suppress the old man, so that the new man may come forth and become strong. Therefore our baptism abides forever, and even though someone should fall from it and sin, nevertheless we always have access thereto, that we may again subdue the old man. But we need not again be sprinkled with water, for though we were put under the water a hundred times, it would nevertheless be only one baptism, although the operation and signification continue and remain. Repentance, therefore, is nothing else than a return and approach to baptism, that we repeat and practice what, practice what we began before but abandoned. This I say, lest we fall into the opinion in which we were for a long time, imagining that our baptism is something past, which we can no longer use after we have fallen again into sin. The reason is that it is regarded only according to the external act once performed. And this arose from the fact that St. Jerome wrote that repentance is the second plank by which we must swim forth and cross over after the ship is broken, on which we step and are carried across when we come into the Christian church. Thereby, the use of baptism has been abolished, so that it can profit us no longer. Therefore, the statement is not correct, or at any rate, not rightly understood. For the ship never breaks, because, as we have said, it is the ordinance of God and not a work of ours. But it happens indeed that we slip and fall out of the ship. Yet if anyone fall out, let him see to it that he swim up and cling to it, till he again come into it and live in it, as he had formerly begun. Thus it appears what a great, excellent thing baptism is, which delivers us from the jaws of hell and makes us God's own, suppresses and takes away sin, and then daily strengthens the new man, and is and remains ever efficacious until we pass from this estate of misery to eternal glory. For this reason, let everyone esteem his baptism as a daily dress in which he is to walk constantly, that he may ever be found in the faith and its fruits, that he suppress the old man and grow up in the new. For if we would be Christians, we must practice the work whereby we are Christians. But if anyone fall away from it, let him again come into it. For just as Christ the mercy seat does not recede from us, or forbid us to come to him again, even though we sin, so all his treasure and gifts also remain. If, therefore, we have once in baptism obtained forgiveness of sin, it will remain every day as long as we live, that is, as long as we carry the old man about our neck. Mm -hmm.